Hi, everybody, and welcome to An American Breakthrough, a podcast for the United States Conference of Mayors. I'm your host, Greg Fisher, Mayor of Louisville and President of the Conference. Since taking office, President Biden has signed a series of executive orders on climate and environmental justice. He's rejoined the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, established a national climate task force to coordinate climate action across all federal agencies, revoked previous federal policies that threatened our nation's public health and our environment, and committed to cutting U.S. greenhouse gas emissions 50% by the year 2030. And last week on Earth Day, President Biden hosted a leaders summit on climate with representatives of 40 nations to underscore the urgency and economic benefits of climate action. Now, for years, mayors across the country have been implementing climate action plans in their communities. Mayors know firsthand that cities of all sizes are dealing with the effects of climate change and recognize the importance of protecting our environment for current and future generations. I'm really pleased today to be joined to talk about all things climate with Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall, the chair of the Conference's Alliance for a Sustainable Future. Welcome, Mayor. Thank you for having me, Mayor. It's my pleasure. Well, what a change uh, a new president makes. <laughs> yes, in so many ways. And I think we're just beginning to see uh, some of those hopes come to fruition. So a lot of hope right now. Well, when you bring it down local in Salt Lake City, uh, you guys are a great growing city and a beautiful part of the country. What are some of the challenges you guys are facing with climate? Sure. The Southwest uh, throughout the United States is the hardest hit area in America for climate change impacts. Not really surprising, but we have been here in Salt Lake City, and I think we're going to continue to be impacted by climate change, particularly with drought and wildfire. We have a bowl-shaped geography. If anyone's ever flown into Salt Lake City, you know that we're right between two mountain ranges that kind of come together at the north and south points. And that geography extends our city limits up into the foothills of the mountain range and the forests. So wildfire has been a serious risk for us as the capital city. And right now, 90% of the state of Utah is in extreme doubt, drought conditions that are induced, of course, by climate change and exacerbating the issue at the same time. So we've had wildland brush fires that come uh, right up to neighborhoods, and uh, hopefully our firefighters working with our state folks will continue to be able to keep them from getting into the neighborhoods, but mayors across this country know uh, far more tragically uh, so far than Salt Lake City just how innervated the wildlife ecosystem and the drought uh, realities end up coming into our community. So um, that's a very real threat we take seriously, and then wildfire smoke from the region, um, outside the state even, coming into our bowl-shaped valley is a public health threat to our residents. It impacts our air quality uh, in the summer, and we have uh, poor air quality issues in the winter with particle pollution that gets trapped in the valley. So um, the environmental challenges are the, really the reason I got into politics in the first place, and we just keep adding more reasons to be um, significantly and I think uh, intentionally engaged as a city in every piece of the work we do in uh, trying to to protect our city and, and face the real consequences of climate change that are already playing out here. Well, I think part of the issue is like the lack of humility that we have, right, is, is people. We think we're somehow separate from nature. 
while we see evidence of this imbalance all around us. So what's it going to take for us to turn this around? I think that firsthand experience and the impacts that we can perceive here in Utah, where most of our houses, even in the capital city, are about a 30-minute drive from being at a ski resort, which is a lot of the reason our population continues to grow faster than any other state in the nation. Uh, The current census numbers are putting at us just over 18% population growth, fastest in the country. But those same resources that draw us in are five national parks, um, but the ski resorts up in northern Utah are losing snow. The snowpack is changing, and the, the ski childhoods that many of us remember are pretty dramatically different from the ski and the snow experience we have today. The snowpack is decreasing. It's affecting our watershed. And therefore, as you know, we talked about fire um, results that happen. But I think when people can say, in my lifetime, I've seen and experienced this change in my environment Uh, Therefore, it's reasonable to expect that these changes may continue. And I think uh, when we put in drought restrictions like we have at the state and the local level just recently, again, you know, it it asks of our residents, don't just make these reductions in your water consumption or considering our waste impacts or the many cardboard boxes that show up on our front doorsteps every day and what does that carbon footprint do? but let's talk about changing beyond the drought emergency at hand and make changes at the systems level so that we can get at this more effectively. Well, and the irony of climate change is while you have drought in Utah and in the Southwest, we've got too much water here in Louisville, right. in Kentucky, you know, so the rain events, the flash rain events that we have now that overwhelm our sewage systems and lead to poor water quality as a result of that, leading to massive expenses with our consent decree to get this done. It's just there's change everywhere, and it's not the natural balance that uh, uh, we are used to, that the natural way is used to, that our animals, our plants, and everything. So all this change is very uh, concerning. Yeah, and we would say that's a we had a once in a 500-year storm a couple of years ago, totally overwhelmed our water infrastructure flooded homes that are not in a floodplain, never carried flood insurance. And it's, it was one of those moments of the tangible experience where the city had to say, this is a once in a 500 year storm, but the reality is these are gonna be much more common than every 500 years. We don't have an infrastructure that's built, that was built to deal with this. Um, and these are very expensive conversations. Yeah, and it's a good example of how being environmentally responsible and being a good business go hand in hand, because you might think you can take a shortcut today, but you're going to pay for it one way or another. And we're paying for it in public costs in these particular examples with uh, consent decrees that come into a lot of the cities, especially in the eastern part of the country around their wastewater uh, systems. And then air quality is something that we all suffer with. We're in the Ohio River Valley, so the air can get trapped here. Now, fortunately, we've moved away from coal-fired plants in the region, uh, and that's cleaned up the air quite a bit. And all across the country, you're seeing a reduction in coal-fired plants as well. So tell us a little bit about the energy mix in in Utah and how you guys are taking specific action on your air quality issues. Yeah, like like you, with our topography, we end up with a a temperature inversion in the winter and ozone acclimate or ozone um, a collection in the valley in the summertime. It happens twice a day. And of course, our uh, areas of our city that are 
the economically more depressed areas have lower access to opportunity are the hardest hit by our air pollution issues. So the environmental justice issue is, is, was a lever for me to get into this work. And it's one of the top issues actually of Salt Lake residents overall is our air quality problems. So when, when, our, when our power contract came up with our electricity provider, which is Rocky Mountain Power here, instead of just re-signing a 20 year contract, we knew that we wanted to get to 100% renewable energy coming into the city and that our power provider wasn't on that same course with us. So instead of signing that 20-year franchise agreement, uh, we entered into a five-year with them. And we came to an agreement on what our clean energy goals are. Um, it, it's not part of our contract, but our power provider said, we recognize these goals with you and we're going to work with you every year on what the energy mix opportunities are to help you move toward your goal. That goal is uh, 2030 for 100% renewable. We did that five years ago. And so this year I'm gonna be renegotiating our franchise agreement with our, our power provider. And I think that we've shown over the last five years in working with them that we're willing to uh, bring create a lot of creativity to the conversation, frankly, about how do we get more solar and wind opportunities, which are our greatest uh, environmental friendly renewable energy assets here in Utah into our mix faster. And so uh, we've made some, some pretty tremendous investments there and we're, we'll be at an 80% renewable energy for Salt Lake City Corp Corporation's energy use in just the next three to four years. But we're bringing more uh, communities on board with us. And right now there's 27 other communities in the state of Utah who want to get to this 100% renewable goal much faster. And as this blue dot in a very red state, it is, it's more than 27 times more impactful. It's exponentially more impactful to have more rural communities sharing in these same clean energy goals. And climate's one of those areas where we often do see bipartisan support. So I'm certainly thankful for that. And, you know, reaching some of our clean energy goals is tough. I mean, here in Louisville, uh, we have a basically a monopolistic provider of energy. Uh, they don't like being described that way, but that's more or less uh, how it is. So uh, we've developed a partnership with the National Renewable Energy Lab to chart our path to 100% clean electricity for our metro government operations by 2030 as well. Just a, it's it's not straightforward. It's not easy. It's not inexpensive. So there's a lot of ways out there for our listeners to consider on how to get to your clean energy goals. Can I mention one other thing? I think that as cities with, you know, housing investment dollars, we've got a redevelopment agency and we contribute usually less than 10% of a total cost on a project, but a significant gap financing. All of these finance tools that cities have in their belts, um, I encourage mayors and city folks to look at what, if any, environmental standards you're attaching to access to those funds. The technology for cleaner buildings, for electrifying buildings, um, and frankly, the cost of doing so is paying for itself and the business case is making itself in most cases. So we are trying to tighten up um, what the reductions in interest rate look like. If you have a quote green project, we used to give um, until very recently, you could get a 0.5% interest rate reduction on a loan from the city for millions of dollars just for being close to a bus stop. 
Now that builder didn't do anything to put that bus stop there. They're not contributing to faster bus service. They're not building a new covered seating. They're just near it. And I'm not going to give an interest rate reduction for something that they actually haven't contributed to. That property is going to develop regardless. So I think that we have a lot of opportunities in our finance and belt as cities to figure out how do we continuously improve our environmental standards as building technology is improving and making that case more and more affordable. And we can use uh, other mat- methods. So for instance, with our procurement, uh, you know, we make it a requirement for certain of our vendors to have their green practices in place and commitments with those. When we work with certain nonprofits, depending on their scope and scale, the same thing. And so we're just trying to penetrate this culture within our city that, you know, green is the default option, but you have to be intentional about working about it right now as the economy is in transition. And one of those areas in transition is the electrification of the fleet. And with some of the vehicles that city governments own, it's easy to do with others like large uh, garbage trucks or such, it's more difficult. So can you talk to us a little bit about progress you're making with your fleet? Yeah, our, our city partners with the state for our transit system, and they're making improvements with natural gas and electric buses. And we're using some of our investment to help expand access to those, uh, not only to buses, but uh, to making sure they're cleaner. But for our city vehicles, we've made some uh, big commitments. And just recently, our council adopted a electrified transportation resolution that sets some clear goals for us around um, purchasing of uh, our vehicles, all of our sedans in the next two years will be plug-in. All of our new SUVs by 2025 will be uh, will be plug-in, and our pickup trucks. We're looking at that uh, electric fire truck that uh, City in California purchased last year, and hoping to see that technology prove out to be something we want to pick up on. But with our refuse packers, we have. Um, compressed natural gas on our, our waste removal trucks. We've got a 110 hybrid patrol vehicles in our police department. And I think about three dozen all electric vehicles in our city fleet. We've got um, free EV charging throughout the city also. And that's always something we want to add, but uh, we're transitioning our fleet. And we've set some pretty aggressive goals. And again, the, the business case is paying um, and proving out to be this, that this is good for our public investment. It's good for our public dollars. Well, it's fantastic progress. And it's a super strong and important signaling uh, mechanism that you're giving to the rest of the city that, you know, their public dollars are work in a green and responsible way. And you're encouraging other people through your modeling on how to uh, go greener as well. So good job on that. Let's let's jump up a little bit. Uh, big week last week when President Biden hosted the Leaders Summit on Climate with over 40 countries there. And kind of what were your thoughts? I mean, you got into this business of being a public servant because of your environmental concerns. And uh, it was a tough four years for the environment under the Trump administration, I think is fair to say. And so President Biden comes in with a different approach. And uh, what are the emotions and thoughts that were running through your mind last week? Oh, that, that main takeaway was just how refreshing it was to hear our president collaborating with other leading nations um, to come together over climate change and to hear him say that we want to lead on this and that climate action is America's priority. Finally, we're back in this conversation. Um, and I obviously, I think we're biased, Mayor Fisher, but cities have been towing this line and we've stayed with it. 
cities make, they were keeping the wheels on the bus as far as these local conversations helping to drive and sustain the priority that climate change needs to be. I think it's the, the biggest crisis facing the world is climate change. And to hear our president come around, um, it's, it's about time and it gives us a lot of hope, but we're gonna keep at it as a city. And the youth climate activists and that meeting and uh, over the course of those conversations were as inspiring as ever. Um, we definitely instill hopefulness at the local and the worldwide level. Well, I'm grateful to see the merging of the conversation between climate and the environment and business interests right now. You know, and of course, you hear that from President Biden a lot. You know, this is about jobs. This is about good jobs. This is about jobs of the present and the future. And certainly industry has uh, proven that to be true. So when we have a national industrial policy, basically around electrification of fleet and what that means toward the growth of our economy and our ability to trade uh, with clean products, I think is extraordinarily powerful as well. So it's wonderful to have a leader that's pulling all this together. And frankly, I think a non-political way, a science-based way that's good for the environment and good for the economy. So how do you, do you, you know, a lot of people I've met in climate, you know, they've been at this for so long, they kind of get bummed out, you know, because we're not moving fast enough. But what, uh, what keeps your energy up and what gives you hope with your work on climate? Yeah, I think just as we've talked about the business case uh, in this conversation, this is becoming more and more mainstream. And I think we're past the point of climate change being only a topic for activists and scientists. Uh, at the most local level, people in my city are having these conversations. They're having them from dinner tables to church groups, uh, the broader community and up to the elected level. And they're demanding of us solutions. They're also supporting our investment in these solutions. Um, equity and affordability for all of our residents is driving our conversations, whether it's with our power provider or the transit agency, or the way that we think about raising taxes to buy up more bus service or what, what it might be. Um, but our people are asking for it and they're demanding it of us. And that gives me a lot of hope. And I'm hearing more people talk about environmental justice than I have in a long time in terms of mainstreaming the conversation. And you know, the shift of the conversation from, well, that's just kind of too bad. They don't have enough money to live anywhere else to, well, hold on a second here. I mean, what's the equitable response to something like this? And what's that tell us about social determinants of health? And what's that do to people's quality of life? And is, is that a just and fair thing to do? And so all of the talk about advancing racial equity that's taken place in our country over the last year or so is really starting to permeate with every conversation, which I, I believe is the welcome, both welcome and the just type of conversation and action that should be taking place as well. There's never been a more compelling time to be in elected office than there is today. And I, I think that for those of us, uh, those many of us who, who got into public service work to make change and make positive change, we've never had an opening and an opportunity to get deep into the systems um, as we have before us now. And coming from a community organizing background, you know, you know that there's a window of opportunity that comes with a movement. You don't know how long that window will be open, but uh, in order for this to be more than a movement and a moment, we have to seize this opportunity to build in to the way we work and fix systems that have been broken from the beginning. We have a, a redlining map of Salt Lake City that 
I keep hanging in my office at City Hall next to my desk. It's uh, from 1963. It's illegal. But those lines still predict outcomes for my residents in the city. They predict graduation rates, access to capital. They predict housing stability. They predict uh, fetal mortality, uh, access to transportation, frequency of transit routes. So we're, we are not beyond the, the past, the not so distant past that I think for too long we, uh, we talked about as something that isn't relating to what we are doing today, but the opportunities of 2020 and George Floyd's murder um, and the conversations that it's sparking are a tremendous piece of work before us as mayors and city people. We've got to take it on. Oh, that's inspiring, Mayor. I appreciate that. Yeah, now is the time uh, for all these issues. Of course, the last major civil rights discussions of, of scale were in the 60s, and white America got it wrong, uh, really turned the other way. Uh, I, I pray that will not be the, uh, what's happens now. It doesn't, we're not in our city, I can tell you that, and I know you're not as well. So now it's broad scale, national change, whether it's race relations, whether it's the environment, all of this stuff goes together to restore balance uh, in race relations and income and wealth and certainly in the environment. If we bring the environment back in balance, we'll be in good shape and have uh, the humility to understand without that, everything else is going to become pretty secondary if we don't get this right. Amen. There's a intersectional nature to our environmental impacts, be they good or bad. And uh, I, for example, in Salt Lake City, where I talked about the air quality impacts and the economic challenges being greatest in our city, we're planting a thousand trees a year in those neighborhoods. In addition to the about 1100 trees we plant throughout the rest of the city every year. So we celebrated Earth Day last week by kicking off this year's thousand trees planting on the west side. And, um, you know, I I think we, we might look at a tree and say, that's a really simple thing and you're not making a big enough impact. It's trees are a yes and, they're beautiful. They improve our air quality, they improve walkability, but they affect property values and they, they affect your HVAC costs on any kind of building and they improve the livability in so many ways. So anyway, while we're working on our franchise agreements and growing public transit, increasing electrification of our buildings, we're going to be planting a ton of trees in Salt Lake City at the same time. One at a time. One at a time. There's nothing like getting your hands in the dirt for real when you're a mayor. Oh, it's part of the DNA. <laughs> it's part of the DNA of humanity. And it's like, and we can see that we got something done. We planted yeah. that tree. <laughs> I'd rather have a tree than a plaque on a building. So <laughs> well, light. thank you, Mayor Mendenhall, for joining us today. And thank you all for listening to this great conversation. Stay tuned for our next episode of an American Breakdown.